peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome back to the program. It's an NFL wall-to-wall carpeting edition of the program, rightfully so. If you got the double nickel Super Bowl, you got to focus your intentions. And so, yeah. Kirk, in moments, we'll see if your predictions and analysis from last week are maintaining. You have the opportunity and the right to shift mm-hmm. your thoughts. Uh, after you're done with that, we will get to uh, former NFL commissioner, your commissioner. My commissioner. That's what I'm call He's my commissioner. Exactly. Uh, Paul Tagliabu will join us. He'll talk to us about uh, the RISE program and also his fingerprints on really important moments during his tenure as commissioner as it pertains to uh, fairness and justice. And then uh, we'll stay with the NFL. Their vice president of football strategy and business development, Natara Holloway, will swing by to talk about uh, the NFL Madden Challenge and, and the many initiatives the NFL has with historically black colleges and universities. I think people will be surprised uh, to learn some of the things maybe they don't already know. Before we get to any of that, sir, what's um, up? Last, last week, am I, if my memory serves me correctly, yeah, we're going with experience over current trends. Mm-hmm. You were you were right now one more time with T Brady and friends. Are you still there as everyone is now on the historical home game for Tampa <laughs> Bay? I believe Kansas City is on the ground now, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody is ready to get into this game. Uh, some people will just be focused on the commercials. Others will actually be focused on the halftime show and our buddy of the weekend. But yeah. most of us will be digging in to see who gets to hold that beautiful Lombardi trophy. Yeah, you know what? I always give that preliminary about how I feel about the game. And then all of a sudden I get into Super Bowl week and more than more likely I always change the pick, which I normally do. And but I feel like this week, having talked to players so far this week on both sides from Kansas City and Tampa, um, there just seems to me that the dude Tom Brady is just a monster, man. And it's not even about his play. It's about his aura, right? There's just certain players who have that aura that when they're around, it brings out the most in everybody else around the team, right? We see it in a lot of professional sports. And you mentioned a lot too, um, Tampa being at home, hosting a play, I mean, hosting a Super Bowl. The first time we've ever had that in 55 uh, opportunities that they've had the Super Bowl. So Tampa will be at home. They'll be comfortable. They'll be rested. They'll be staying in their own homes, you know, this prior this week and getting ready for a game in which Tom Brady will be playing in his 10th. It, it's hard to, to go against experience. It's hard to go against a guy who knows how to navigate in sometimes adverse conditions. That's what Tom Brady has shown me. But Patrick Mahomes did it last year, right? He was in some adversity. He was down 10 points late in the fourth quarter, and yet he willed his team to victory and became the Super Bowl MVP. It's hard to not like both sides. It really is. But for me, I'm going to go with 
Tom Brady. I'm going to go with the GOAT. I'm going to go with the guy who will possibly get his seventh championship passing Michael Jordan <laughs> championships. Because I think this is what the Super Bowl win for him would be, Jax. It's not about NFL. This is now about one of the best athletes of all time in terms of accomplishment, right? Now, you, you, we always can throw Bill Russell in there, but I couldn't watch Bill Russell. I was too young. I was old enough. You're going yeah, before hey. my eyes yeah. only. <laughs> I mean, the black and white film. Hey, I love you, Bill Russell. You know what I'm saying? Oakland, California. I got you, brother. But hey, um, nah, we, I, I'm going to go with Tom Brady, another Bay Area guy, um, and him going into this realm of accomplishment in team sports. Just one thing about individual sports that we always see, whether it's Tiger, Serena, you know what I mean? But a team sport and to have that influence to get to 10 and possibly win number seven, I got to roll with TB12, man. Any other time would you find yourself with any other guy other than Tom Brady picking against the defending champion returning to the Super Bowl? I probably would not. Yeah, I, I totally. I this is this the only. Point. That's, that's a great gravity point. of it, right? He's the only person I think that anybody would. He's the only person because of his experience, um, and then some of the other factors too. And you know, I, I, I they have a two minority or black coaches in power. They're in their offensive coordinator and also their defensive coordinator. That does pull at you a little bit, right? You know, Todd Bowles is the defensive coordinator. Byron Leftwich is the offensive coordinator. And to see those two, you know, black men will be calling the shots. Those will be the guy's face on camera that you see calling the plays offensively and defensively. You could throw Eric Bieniemy too, on the other side for the Kansas City Chiefs as well. He's the offensive coordinator there. So you're you're pulling for so many things in, in, in all of this that... You're like, all right, I got to choose. I got to choose a team. All right. But if I have to choose one, I'm going to choose Tom Brady. And I think the Buccaneers. And I got the game right now, 31 to 27. That, that's my prediction. Okay, today. we're going to get some that's, fireworks. Okay. Yeah, 31, 27. Um, but they won't fire off the cannons, though, right? The cannons that are in Raymond James Stadium, they are not allowing the Buccaneers to fire off the cannons like they normally do. Not their game. Their home game. It ain't their game. They, they're trying to tell us you know what they should do. Just fire them off for every score, exactly. even for field goals. Let's go. This ain't a neutral site game. This is a home game, man. Oh, but, man. Listen, if that's the case, <laughs> let them fire it for everybody then. Let, exactly. Let's wear everybody out. Um, Tom can't make those mistakes, though, right? If no. Make, those three picks would kill him in this game. Yeah, you don't want to give Patrick Mahomes too many opportunities, right? You give him extra opportunities, you might as well just say, hey, good night, cancel Christmas, because he is going to cash in. And so if it's anything like we saw, Jax, in that first matchup we saw back in, I believe it was uh, week 12, um, if we get anything similar to that, right, I think we're going to see some fireworks like you mentioned. It's going to be a good game. A lot of just good minds. And I, I, I want to just sit back and, and really look at Tom Brady and turn and, and Patrick Mahomes because I think we had this conversation a little bit is that this is the only time that we can watch two different generations quarterbacks. Tom Brady is that generation of the early turn of the century till about 2015, 2016. He's still going, but Patrick Mahomes represents a new generation, right? I look at my little six year old and he's got his Patrick Mahomes jersey on. And so I'm saying this is the only time where we'll get two different generation 
quarterbacks going up against each other and the right to win a championship. We might not get that. We don't, I can't, someone told me it's like Magic and Jordan, but Magic was a little bit older. Man, Magic was getting out of the league. Jordan was ascending, but that's kind of the closest to it because we never got a LeBron and Kobe or, you know, a LeBron versus Michael Jordan. Yeah, you got to give Mahomes credit. Like, this isn't usually the time on your personal career timeline right. that you're standing in this space as, as the guy. Uh, before we take a break, uh, coming up is former commissioner Paul Tagliabue to talk to us about uh, some fantastic initiatives uh, that he's a part of. Uh, but as a player watching this game, mm. are you in it? Like, are you, do you find yourself still X and O's or do you remove yourself back to enjoy the spectacle? How do you watch? I think years past I would, um, but I'm going to go back to X's and O's this week. Right. And years prior being at the Super Bowl, this is my first one not covering or being at the Super Bowl in seven years since I retired. So in person, yeah. Yeah, in person. So this is gonna be uh, for me, sit back, go X's and O's. And uh I'll be over on Mad Dog Radio, by the way, if you want to hear me. I'll be doing some Mad Dog Radio during the game. Promote it, baby. Promote yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna be doing some live coverage, just watching football, me, Patrick Maher, and Bruce Gratkowski, former NFL quarterback as well. So it'll be us three just Chopping it up, watching the game, and I've been okay to uh, slip in a couple of uh, of uh, non-choice words. I've been, I, I've gotten the okay. It today. is satellite radio. <laughs> you are allowed. Have, have yourself a cocktail, some nachos yes. right there. Get it going. Now you already know, man. Get, the wings will be on deck. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Listen, we'll take a quick break now. You, I, I'm glad you doubled down. No change. You got, you got an opportunity. To do it, but you're staying with Tom Brady and and those Bucks. We we will go at, at a wider range of things when we have uh, the former commissioner of the National Football League, the 2020 NFL Hall of Famer. I mean, I had to wait 18. He's gonna have to wait 18 full months for his jacket. By the way, uh, yeah. with that being said, Paul Tagliabue joins us next on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Forward Progress continues, and we're so pleased to have with us former NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue, who joins us uh, this Super Bowl week to talk about one of the very super initiatives that has been around for over a half decade now, and it's entitled Rise. And it, because of these times, things have to be virtual, and so what's coming up is a virtual experience for fans. It's called Champions of Change, and it highlights firsthand stories from NFL players like Saquon Barkley and legends like Wark Dunn, who we've had on Forward Progress already. Uh, Mr. Tagliabue, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. And we understand you, you joined the RISE initiative uh, when it was launched. What was it about this particular ideal uh, that caught your eye and, and say, you know what, I got to be a part of this? Well, it was actually going for a couple of years be you know, before I agreed to be the co-chairman of the board. Oh, Steve Ross had talked to me about it before he launched it, but I was kind of busy with other things. I was chairing the board at Georgetown University, and I didn't want to commit to something that I couldn't really work hard at. But two and a half, three years ago, I told Steve I'd be I was ready, so that's when I went on the board and became the co-chair and been very active since. It's a great organization. It's unique, you know, because it brings together all the leagues and not just league sports, but individual sports and uh, not just professional sports, but college sports and high school athletes and high school coaches. It's really a unique organization that's got a very powerful set of platforms. You know, Paul, as uh, you've kind of looked at the landscape of the NFL currently and you think about with your involvement in Rise, 
uh, just to see athletes and their activism, how we've seen so much rise from that. Um, to me, the league, when you were there, it wasn't about the players so much. It, I mean, obviously, the players play, but we kept kind of activism outside of the game a little bit. It seems now the NFL is more embraced this from the players. Well, why is it happening more so now than maybe in years past? Well, I think it's the way society has evolved. And, uh, you know, I think it's still still presents a bunch of issues. I mean, you go back to the late 60s, you had Jim Brown speaking out and along with Muhammad Ali and, and John Wooten. It was not just Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown, it was John Wooten and other NFL players in the late 60s. Now then I think through the 70s and the 80s, a lot of the activism was in, in the union movement and the Players Association movement for free agency. Right. And John Mackey was a leader and Kermit Alexander were leaders. And of course, Gene Upshaw was a leader. But I think another big thing that happened was that you came to a generation of players when I was commissioner and even before me who, whose attitudes were changed toward advocacy by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In other words, you go back to the 50s and look at Tank Younger and Roosevelt Brown and some of those players who had come from historically black schools like Brand, Grambling and Morgan State. Right. A very difficult time for a black athlete to become an activist. Now, Eddie Robinson did amazing things at Grambling and Jake Kaler did great things, but it's a question of time. Players like Upshaw and Mel Blunt and Willie Lanier, they were heavily influenced by Martin Luther King and what was going on. They were influenced by the Civil Rights Act of 64. And so you had that generation who, who, whose activism took, took the form of leading the Players Association. In the early 70s, you had you know, a short player strike. What was the slogan? No freedom, no football. Right. So those guys were aware of, 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 of the importance of civil rights and social activism. Fast forward, you know, we had some of it when I was in the league in 1992. We, there was a, Rodney King was uh, beaten up by the police in L.A. and we created a youth center in the heart of, of L.A. in honor of Rodney King and, and, and to make a point about police brutality. But now you come forward now, you've got players making a lot more money. They have foundations, they have organizations, they have access to platforms that social media produces which didn't exist, you know, when there was network television or, or even cable TV it didn't give people the kind of platform that you have today. And as we're learning, sometimes tweets are good and sometimes tweets are bad. Right. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're available to everybody. So I, think, I think you have to look at a lot of factors to answer the question of why, but certainly it's a good thing that's happening and it's very positive. The other thing I think is really important is that the players know what they're talking about. And and, yeah. and and so so part of Rise's mission is twofold: educate the public, educate the players, educate the coaches as to how to be an advocate, and then you can reach your second goal, which is to empower them to be agents of change. And I think that education and empowerment is facilitated by technology, like we're dealing with here today: satellite radio, Zoom, and all the other video you know techniques that are available for people to communicate their message to their audience. Paul Tagliabue with us here on Sirius XM Sports Forward Progress. It's Kirk Morrison, Jason Jackson. We're having a great conversation before we even hopped on the air. And it popped in my mind listening to Coach Reed at a press conference trying to understand full well uh, why his coordinator, Eric Bienemy, is not in a position to be a head coach just yet. And having you on is, is during your tenure. Uh, helping institute the Rooney Rule, 
uh, how you see the creation and how it's moved through over the years, impacting things, and and also your feeling on what still has to be done as we see still men who have paid their dues, done their time, had success, uh, still have challenges in this space. Well, you know, I, I think it starts with a, a couple of things, as we were talking about before. It's about advocates. It's about, I'm glad to see Andy speaking out the way he's spoken out. But one of the key people that, who helped me and Dan Rooney was Bill Walsh, because I became commissioner virtually in the same month that Al Davis made Archell the first black head coach since, since the early 20s. And then in, my, in the first six months of when I was commissioner in 1990, Bill Walsh came to see me and said, we've got to work together on this. And uh, he said, who should we work with? I said, well, we'll work with you. We'll work with Dan Rooney. We'll work with some other people. But he became an advocate for two people who were on his staff, two minority coaches on his staff, which was Dennis Green and Ray Rhodes. He was also an advocate for George Seifert, who became a successor, and he was an advocate for Mike Holmgren. But he was an advocate right on through the process as late as uh, Marvin Lewis getting the job in Cincinnati. Bill Walsh was an advocate. And then, then the guys who were the benefits of that, like Danny Green, in particular as the first one, he became an advocate for the rest. He became an advocate for Tony Dungy. Tony was on his staff as a defensive coordinator. So advocacy is important. I'm glad to see Andy Reid speaking out. The other thing I think is important, there are lots of issues still to be resolved. And, you know, in some ways, you talk about systemic racism. This could be put under that heading if you want to say it because you got 32 coaches and, you know, less than a, less than a half dozen head coaches are from minorities. But the other thing that's important, that people say, what progress has been made in 20 years? I think a lot of progress has been made because in 20 years, we've had 20 teams who've had black head coaches. 20 years ago, you had one, the Raiders. Then you had two, Minnesota. Then you had three, Philadelphia. Now you've had 20. Now, one of the issues is why haven't there been more repeats? Do they have shorter tenures to prove themselves than, than white coaches? So there's still a lot of issues, but I think it's hard to say that there's a general pushback. And if you look at some of the teams who haven't had, you know, minority head coaches, you can maybe you can answer the question why. Why have the Patriots not had a black head coach? Well, they've had Bill Belichick, and not too many people can argue with that, but they also produced Brian Flores. So I think one of the key things that the league has done in the last six months is that system where they're apparently going to reward teams who produce minority candidates and then let them go elsewhere. Reward someone for, for who's engaged actively in talent development without, without regard to race. I think that's a big, big switch because in the past, if you had a great coordinator on your, on your st staff, sometimes your first priority was to hide him from everybody else. Not to reward, not to get a reward yourself if he moves on. So that's a big change in culture. Rewarding people for developing talent that moves on is important. When I became commissioner, there was an attitude in the league office, but well, we don't want to lose any of our good people to the teams. I said, it's the opposite. If the team starts stealing our people, amen, it's, it's a way of saying we've got good people. Yeah. If you don't have people to steal, it means you don't have good people. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> no, so Andy's got good people because he's a phenomenal head coach, like Bill Walsh was a phenomenal head coach. The, the, the coaches who turn out to be inadequate for whatever reason don't have a lot of protégés. The other thing I think has been interesting this time around is Todd Ball's defense. He got a lot of exposure on that defense. Yeah. You know, he did a good job as a defensive coach. He had that opportunity with the Jets. 
I think he's another guy, hopefully, is in the pipeline because he's proven himself again this year to be special. You know, Commissioner, uh, the Super Bowl is in Tampa this year. Um, in next year, 2022, the Super Bowl will be in Los Angeles. But in 2023, it will be 30 years from the time that you told the state of Arizona, I'm removing the Super Bowl from Arizona because you guys don't observe the MLK holiday. Now, 2023, we'll see the Super Bowl in Arizona again. But just think in that 30 years since you said, no, no Super Bowl until you guys get caught up with what's going on in America. They finally adhered to the NFL's decision and they observed it as a state and a federal holiday as well. Kind of take me back to that time and just kind of showing in the, how the NFL had to flex its muscle to get a state like uh, Arizona caught up. Well, you know, there's a couple of things there that came together. One I've already mentioned is that Al Davis had made Art Shell a head coach in October, November of 89. Now we're at the league meeting three or four months later in March of 1990, looking at the potential to have a Super Bowl in Arizona, but also looking at a political controversy in Arizona where they originally had it and it was repealed and then, you know, there was, go was going to the voters. So, so it was a time that we were focused on racial justice issues, not just in the NFL, but and, and not just for coaches, but for the league generally. Secondly, as I, as I alluded to earlier, you had players, former players, leaders like Gene Upshaw and others who, who made it clear that when they were arguing their case, they knew what the case was all about. It was, it was an argument for justice and for fairness. So you couldn't ignore what was going on in Arizona in that context. And the people in Arizona were aware of that. They had an earlier governor who was supportive. President Reagan had been supportive of the Martin Luther King holiday. And now you had a governor who was probably, you could call it retrograde, certainly regressive. Mm -hmm. So there was an opportunity that, that came at the right time. You can't say it's in the right place because we weren't picking on any particular place. We were just picking on those individuals who did not want to respond. So anyway, you know, I think that uh, that there was there were some obvious reasons to go forward and say to Arizona, "You will have the game if you if the voters pass the uh, referendum in, support, in honor of Martin Luther King's legacy." But if you don't, we're going to move the game elsewhere. And and it was not as if. 90% of the people were against Martin Luther King. It was split down the middle, you know, 50-50, much like society is today on some of these issues of race and, and, and fairness and justice. So we did it. The voters, within a short period of time, a year or so, came to the opposite decision that they would have the holiday. We, we played the game in Pasadena in place of Arizona, but came back to Arizona, I think, in 1995 or 1996. You know, I think, I think there's a bigger issue there, uh, which you need to understand. If you go back to the civil rights movement in the 60s, people withheld their business from, um, from, from retailers or restaurants or organizations who would discriminate. And that, that opportunity to have a boycott was obviously enormously important. And, and basically, if you can say it, in Arizona, we had the opportunity to use our leverage and withdraw the game. It was a form of a business boycott of that yeah. state at that time. In many circumstances, you don't have the opportunity to withhold your services or your business to give you leverage. And you've got to resort to protests and preaching and programs and partnerships. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons RISE is so important. It, it, it can pull together programs. It can pull together partnerships. It can 
respect those and support those who protest. So you have tools available today that are important and effective that have not always been available. We should note that uh, Rise hosted its sixth Super Bowl critical conversation. Uh, our listeners can check it out at uh, risetowin.org. You'll see Patrick Mahomes in there. Uh, we look forward to viewing that. One other thing on this connection to your decision years ago is you see this summer of uprising awareness, as you noted a little bit earlier, players knowing full well what's going on in this world that's so woven together by social media, everything's at our fingertips. Your, your view of the response of the players, the league, its teams, the current commissioner, when there was a real turn to question equality, uh, equal rights, and, and justice. Well, I think that uh, not just the NFL, but I think sp- sports generally have had a you know very positive innovation process of innovation and process of change. Let's face it: sports leagues at the professional level, sports conferences at the collegiate level, they're designed they're, they're designed and structured to produce football, basketball. It is designed to produce entertainment, not to be advocates for one particular point of view or another particular point of view. But in the last two years, what we've seen, and especially in the last year, perhaps, we've seen a very conscious effort by those organizations to add advocacy to their portfolio. And it's being done in different ways. In the NFL, it includes the Players Coalition. In the NBA, they've set up the new foundation. substantial commitment of money uh, and all of them are supporting rise so i think what we're seeing is the development of institutions permanent institutions that will have skills and 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 systems for being advocates 365 days a year which is important because when you think about an athlete as an advocate you're also thinking about an individual whether it's a man woman or whatever who who for many months during the year they're committed to their profession and in terms of advocacy, in many cases, it's got to become a part-time thing. If you're if you're in the NBA finals, you're not going to be able to go visit some community like Ferguson, Missouri. If it's the off season, you can go to Ferguson, Missouri, or right. or to Minneapolis, Minnesota, to deal with these issues and be present and be an advocate. So athletes, in a sense, are are inevitably going to be part-time advocates. Now, once they're retired. They can be full-time advocates. Once they have social media, maybe that becomes makes it full-time. But there are issues that have to be addressed that I think the leagues and the athletes and the coaches are addressing very effectively. Um, last one for me, uh, Commissioner, is that, you know, what the, with the type of momentum that has now kind of generated through the NFL circles and the way that the NFL, the players, Players Union, have, everybody's kind of come together to have these initiatives. How do we continue to build on this momentum as the final game is this Sunday? And then obviously it goes into that quiet period, so to speak, especially this year with no combine, things like that. How do we build on the momentum as the as a league going forward? You know, I think a key thing is going forward, you have to be prepared to change. You have to be prepared to sit back and look at your record and say, this was important and it worked. This really didn't work. And, and category three, maybe this, this turned out to be counterproductive. So you got, you got to be prepared to change and, and think about new programs. And at the top of my list, and look, going forward, you have to look at 
what things produced pushback and why was there pushback? Because it's obvious, going back to the Civil War in the 19th century, that whenever progress has been made on racial issues in our society, there's been pushback. That's what produced the Jim Crow era in the late part of the 19th century into the early 20th century. Go back to 64, you had Martin Luther King speaking at the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, and it produced pushback. Within the next couple of years, you had riots in many cities. By 68, you had police uh, and protest conflict in Chicago at the Democratic Convention. And then through the 70s, we saw pushback in a lot of states in terms of access to the polls and so on. So what is the pushback? Where is the pushback going to be? And what can we do to neutralize it? Now, one of my favorite quotes comes from the Supreme Court Justice who we lost in the last year, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She said that uh, fight for the things you care about, but do it in ways that leads others to join you. Don't do it in ways that lead others to become, become part of the pushback. So that to me is an important consideration going forward. And, 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 and there are lots of things you can do to avoid, minimize the pushback, but you better assume one thing, it's going to be there. Similar to a football game. Yeah. You go out on the field and you think of, of the first 10 plays, eight are going to be passing plays. And none of them work. In fact, you have two interceptions. All of a sudden, you're, you're reassessing your plan <laughs> and adapting it to the new circumstances. So there's always new circumstances to which you need to adapt. And I think that's an important thing right now as the NFL season ends and as we move in, into a new year with new opportunities, but new risks of pushback. And I, well, I think you don't have to look very far to see where some of the pushback will come from. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't get a chance to ask you just a couple football questions and also let you know that uh, I'm still excited because I know you retired in 06 as the NFL's commissioner. And as you sort of transitioned out, they started to change the footballs and they would put Roger Goodell's name. But my first interception, I still got the Paul Tagliabue name resigned right there on my football. So I just want to let you know that you, uh, you, you uh, I, I keep you in my home every day, Commissioner. That's why I still call you the Commissioner because you're my Commissioner. Well, the story <laughs> that goes with that, that back in the early '90s, I think the first year that I was Commissioner, Will McDonough, who was one of the great sports writers for the Boston Globe, told Randall Cunningham as they were getting ready for the playoffs that he better be prepared for the, for the ball to be a different ball because my name was longer than Roselle's and the ball and the, <laughs> ball, the spiral, the spiral was going to act in different ways. And, and some people took Will seriously. Very few thought he knew that he was just joking. <laughs> I love that. And the last one too, I, I, I promise this is the last one, but you did get a chance to hand that, that Lombardi trophy to Tom Brady uh, back when he first won his first Super Bowl back in, I believe, 2002. And to think, you know, almost, what, 20 years later, now another commissioner, obviously, Roger Goodell, could still be handing another trophy to Tom Brady to almost 20 years later. Can you, can you just believe that? You what, what do you remember about handing him that first trophy? <laughs> well, that Super Bowl was uh, very special, not just because the Patriots, it was the Patriots first and Tom Brady's first, but it was the first, it was the Super Bowl right after 9-11. Correct. So you had the terrorist attacks in September of 9-11-2001, of and then we were in New Orleans for that Super Bowl with a lot of continuing threats. So the game was played in a, in a setting that the nation had never before experienced. Mm -hmm. And of course... I think the Patriots went into that game as the underdog 
right. on it. And Mr. Kraft was at the presence of mind to say, we are all patriots today, which meant we are all Americans today dealing with the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. I don't think he could have anticipated that 20 years later, his quarterback would still be playing in the NFL, <laughs> going for his seventh ring. Golly. Well, listen, we really appreciate the time. Paul Tagliabu, former commissioner of the National Football League, Pro Football Hall of Famer. I know you've had to wait a long time to get that bust of that jacket squared away, but I, I know they're, they're nailing that down this August. Well, the pandemic seems to put it off every year. Yes, sir. <laughs> I hope they swear it away for you. Mm -hmm. I know uh, well-deserved and a long wait. Thank He's you. my so commissioner. That, that's my commissioner, Jason. Yes, all sir. is my commissioner. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks, commissioner. Very good. Thank you. When we come back, we keep all things NFL in our focus. The National Football League has a HBCU initiative that we have to discuss, the NFL Madden Challenge. Their vice president of football strategy and business development, Natara Holloway, joins us next here on Forward Progress. This is Sirius XM Radio. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Forward Progress continues. It's Jackson, it's Morrison. And as we noted, we continue with the National Football League, who has a long and strong history with historically black colleges and universities, and not just the players. Uh, that were fantastic that came to the NFL from those institutions for a long period of time uh, to discuss the bridge that connects these days. We say hello to Natara Holloway, who is the NFL's vice president of football strategy and business development. And we present you with a virtual cake of celebration, Natara, as you celebrate your 17th anniversary, rocking that shield. So <laughs> congratulations in that space. We'd love for you to talk to our listeners who probably don't have a tangible knowledge of the connection the NFL has had with HBCUs over the years. Sure, so as you mentioned, we have a long, long tradition of, of players uh, coming out of HBCUs. But about in 2016, May, I think it was May of 2016, we launched an actual initiative to impact not only just on the field but off the field. And we did it with uh, two conferences. It was the MEAC and the SWAC. And now it's expanded to four of the, the four conferences. And it's really around uh, providing career opportunities access to individuals um, that have careers outside of the game or tangentially to the game. So we've uh, partnered with the commissioners uh, to really bring uh, NFL alumni, whether it's NFL um, executives. Uh, we have programs and internships to experienceships. We have a number of HBCU experienceships um, students that are actually down in Tampa right now. And so it's one of those things where we just wanted to create a platform that is going to um, create a pipeline to the NFL and not only us, but also our partners as well. I know that's one of the huge things that just from being a, a college athlete and then having the opportunity to either intern or walk around and be at the facilities and offices of the NFL uh, building over there on Park Avenue. Um, just how many, uh, I guess, students or former players uh, on the collegiate level at the HBCU level have went on to have or, or work within the NFL offices? 
You know, it's a very interesting question. Um, I don't have the exact number, but one of the things that we actually found out is not only do we have student athletes that come out of HBCUs, but we also have some of our lawyers, some of our uh, folks that are working in the accounting department, PR. We have a number of HBCUs that are at the league office as well as the club. And so we're actually in the process right now of finding the alumni. And so I'll have a better answer for you as far as numbers are concerned. (laughs) But we were just super surprised and extremely excited about the number of alumni we have on both sides of the business. Well, the cool thing that we're taking a look at now is the NFL hosting this inaugural Madden NFL 21 uh, HBU tournament finals. Tell us a little bit more uh, about this initiative. Sure. So we, uh, just to give a little bit of background, we are always looking for innovative ways to reach students in in different uh, career opportunities. As I mentioned to you before, our relationship on this uh, structured piece of the HBCU collaboration is about creating career opportunities. Um, The e-sports and gaming industry is a billion dollar business. There's an economic impact that is unforeseen at this point in time. So from a strategic perspective, how do you use the game of football and the game of e-sports the esports and Madden to reach students to let them um, see different careers, whether it's in marketing or sponsorship or gaming or um, just uh, software development. So we are using this in a twofold uh from a twofold perspective is yes, we want to have a tournament, but we also want to create awareness about all the careers around esports and how big of an industry this is becoming and make that something that HBCU students can get, uh, get really get around. You know, I think one of the things that HBCUs as well, uh, currently, when you look at just kind of the fabric of the NFL, is that you have some of the great players of yesteryear or of the past that have been big parts of the NFL history. And so how much do those guys come back and are a part of these initiatives and are able to bring more faces from the HBCU to understand kind of the initiatives that the NFL are putting on? That, that's an excellent question. We have uh, engaged with a number of individuals. Doug Williams, uh, we just actually worked with him on uh, opening up a sports and innovation hub at his school. And it, it's, it's one of those things where um, when alumni reach out and say, I really have this great initiative um, and, and want the NFL to at least listen and, and think through how we can actually engage. We can't engage with everything, uh, mm-hmm. but we have actually a committee that we review different proposals from HBCU. So uh, the former players, and it's not just the, the household names, it's, it's individuals that you, you, you know, um, not are not necessarily thinking of, and they're bringing, they're bringing uh, these ideas to the table. And frankly, we're looking for them. Any, any type of bridge that uh, between the commissioners and ourselves, we're, we're looking for any type of bridge for the students and the student athletes. So we, we have done some very unique <laughs> initiatives over the last few years. Uh, this one in particular, because of the virtual space, but we're always looking for ideas. And, and the more we can get students aware of, of what we're um, able to offer as far as careers, we want to do it. Well, Tara Holloway, the National Football League's Vice President of Football Strategy and Business Development with us here on Forward Progress. Tara, I imagine since this summer that you've been getting some some different calls from different people about how to partner. And maybe it's coming from the Players Association or the players, your corporate partners. When you have a summer of awakening like we had Mm -hmm. and the faces and and sounds coming out of your players and teams uh, makes your job a little different, doesn't it? (laughs) <laughs> well, so the, so business strategy, the group that I um, oversee has, has a couple of parts. One of them is innovation and technology. And so uh, we look for innovative ways to expand the game, what we call the future of football. 
So we do get a lot of inquiries in that space. And then the other part that is is so very near and dear to me and, and extremely passionate about is our pipeline group. So we work with our HR department and our new uh, chief diversity officer um, in how do we create the diverse pipeline for GMs and head coaches and other positions um, on the operations side. And so although progress is slow, we have made uh, great progress this year um, in some of our positions. We've made a lot of uh, different tweaks to initiatives and tools and resources and things of that nature, whether it's databases, whether it's networking events. Uh, we have a number of things. HBC, the HBCU initiative is, is also a part of our pipelining uh, team. And so it's, it's yes, the phone has been ringing <laughs> since this summer um, around how do we help with both pandemics um, because we, we are in a racial pandemic and we recognize that and we're not sitting on our laurels. We're doing absolutely everything that we possibly can and, and taking ideas for more. <laughs> no, Natera, I, um, so today as we take the show is National Signing Day in college football for a lot of the athletes. And um, just how huge is it to have a new head coach? And I'm hopefully I'm not plugging this school, but Jackson State University's coach, Deion Sanders. And I'm looking at my social media feed and how much attention not only has he brought his university, but HBCU and, a, and, and just the visibility that I think that honestly, I don't think was there over the last couple of years. And I think it really goes back to your question before is when when individuals are stepping up and speaking up on behalf of HBCUs, you're starting to see, uh, you know, more people paying attention. And you're exactly right. We've been doing this for, for a very long time. Right. But when, when you get folks to really say, hey, you know, there's some great stuff happening at the school or we could get some great stuff to happen at the school if, if people gave us the resources and uh, partnered with us. I think then you start to see just how much talent we haven't seen. So one of the things uh, and, and uh, Dion was actually um, instrumental in, in working with Troy Vincent on this is we were supposed to do a uh, HBCU combine. Yes. Uh, last year in 2020, mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, you know, because of the pandemic, but we're looking at new ways to do that and then make, making sure that that happens when everything is safe to go back to um, normal. But it's, it's one of those things where anyone shining a light on this uh, is, is great for us because it then gives us an avenue to create initiatives like the end of uh, the HBCU combine. Uh, we were going to uh, also do uh, some pro days and things of that nature yeah. uh, that had not been done before. We have an HBCU Council of Scouts now, um, so that had also not been done before. Before you get out of here, I, I have to dive in some of these details about this uh, showcase with Madden, all right? Because I, I have a student athlete who is a gaming freak and has made it very clear that this may be a career. So I want to help. I want to help because there is, there is some dough. So you're going to have the top four gamers uh, from each conference, right? So a total of 16 players that are going to advance to this big game, which, by the way, we can watch right on Twitch. Yep, yep. Is, yay Madden NFL Twitch. Makes you see, I used to get a switch, so I used to kind of <laughs> get it all flashback, <laughs> all jammed up. I get a little jumpy yeah. turn on what? Uh, EA Madden NFL Twitch channel that's on Friday. I should say Saturday, February 6th, starting at 7 Eastern. Uh, we're talking about stacks of cash. Uh, the, the, the second and third place, Kirk, get 2,500 each. Yeah. Uh, they're putting $5,000 in the pocket uh, of the winner. And I, 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 I stagger and marvel at all of it. I accept the fact that these are folks that, that may have a career path. You're going to have some serious gamers on your hand at this event. You know, and, and that's the beauty of it. Again, 
you don't only have to be the, the one who's actually playing the game. So your gamer that you have, I, cause I have one as well. My nephew, uh, my nephews both play as well. Um, <laughs> they can be software engineers. They could be data analysts. They can be game designers. They can be like you all broadcasters and journalists. They could yeah. be, you know, salespeople. So there's just so many things that we want students to look at this and say, I can also do, uh, but yeah, no, it doesn't hurt that the winner gets $5,000. Yeah. And by the way, tell EA next year, they can come off some more. We saw their, we saw their 2020 <laughs> returns. Yeah. It, I it's funny that you billion? say that. We, we have actually talked about uh, raising the pot. So stay tuned for next year. And uh, obviously we were supposed to be in Tampa, uh, which would have been a, a phenomenal experience for the, for the students. Uh, but we will uh, make sure that next year when everything goes back to being safe <laughs> from a perspective of uh, the pandemic, then we will, we will make sure that people have that great experience. Yeah, I'm staying off the, the massive pot that is the National Football League. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just noting that that $5.5 billion oh, yeah. that oh, EA yeah. is raking in all by themselves is significant <laughs> and substantial. Yeah. Hey, uh, that gaming has been very popular and very lucrative for them this year. Absolutely. <laughs> Being at home on those controllers. <laughs> um, just the last one is just now, you know, we have this space and we'll have the Madden. And what else could we see in the future over the next couple months or as, you know, the downtime in the NFL, always figure out, okay, what's the next part what's the next step so well, what's the next step for uh for you know for uh, you know the hbcu and the investment that the nfl has put into it sure so we have a year-round calendar of events that we um actually work with the hbcus on and in fact we have in our pipeline team our team is actually assigned to each conference and so they work with them on various things whether it's careers uh in sports whether it's virtual speakers um we've had some scholarships we're um also uh working on right now um, so some items haven't been announced, but uh, with the uh, ADs and some of the coaches around master classes um, with, with football, um, as I mentioned, we're still looking at if there is any possibility to do pro days, uh, if <laughs> there, there's, there's a way to do that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we are, we're looking for the 2.0 and many of the variations of the coaching side where we're looking at do there, are there coaches on the collegiate level that want to move to the pro side? So we do a lot of that in you say downtime we say off season because there's no downtime okay, <laughs> we have about a week after super bowl and literally that's it <laughs> there it is there it is well listen have a great uh championship game have a great time on saturday with these young folks making some cash i mean they're helping parents out with some toys oh yeah <laughs> go buy some we hope we hope they might. I, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to see Gamer Jackson in, in, the, ne in the next tournament. <laughs> look, look for the young Jordan Jackson. When that name is, <laughs> think of it. me. Thank you. <laughs> see, we've already got one sponsor, one advocate. For there it is. <laughs> he's, he's headed to FAMU. He qualified. I love it. Yes. Uh, Tara Holloway, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. NFL's Vice President of Football Strategy and Business Development. Also, thank you to former NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue for swinging by. Uh, what a great run. We appreciate Kirk giving us some analysis right off the top of the show. We made him <laughs> put on his hat and yes. break this game down for the second week. So for the second week, staying consistent, we appreciate it. Uh, for our producer, Pernell Brown, I'm Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. It's always a pleasure to have you with us here on Forward Project.